listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. You can enjoy more messages like this and more with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. To invite Michael to speak to your group, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. Hold on to your seat and open your heart as Mike teaches us from God's Word. We've been talking about God's vision for every single individual, God's vision for every single family, God's vision for every single church, and His mission for every person, every family, every church around the world. And the five core values that every individual, every single family, and every church must embrace. We talked about simplicity being a value, something that we should be prioritizing in our personal lives, keeping things simple, something that we should be prioritizing as a value in our families and in the body of Christ, in the church. We've talked about movement being a value, not just movement in terms of activity. We've got a lot of busyness already. But the movement of the Spirit of God, that your life must be characterized by the movement of the Spirit of God. Your family must be characterized by the movement of the Spirit of God. And every single church must be characterized by the movement of the Spirit of God. And we began in our last time together by talking about that other value, that key core value for every life, every family, every church, the value of humility. Because without humility, we're not going anywhere with God. Now, before we jump into the Word of God, I want to ask you to close your eyes with me. Now, if you're listening by podcast or maybe even by radio, don't do that if you're driving your car. But if you can, close your eyes with me for a moment and allow me to ask this question that you can decide for yourself and for your family and for the church, which would you rather have if given a choice? Which would you rather have? Would you rather be humble or courageous? Which would you rather have if you could ask God to help you be humble or courageous? Which would you say to God, this is what I want you to help me become? And I want you to imagine that, yes, Imagine that what you're about to hear from the Word of God, what we're about to look at together, actually has significance and is practical and relevant for your life. I want you to imagine that what we're going to look at in the Word of God actually has relevance and practical application for your family. And I want you to imagine that what we're going to look at in the Word of God actually has practical significance and relevance for your church. Now open the Word of God with me to Matthew's Gospel in the 11th chapter. What we're going to do is we're going to look at together the lives of three key people in the Bible whom God moved through powerfully and consistently. Now I was just reading a report by Mark Knoll, and the King James Bible is still the number one English translation worldwide. In the United States, more than 55% of the people still use the King James Bible. So if we were down south, we would probably especially be using the King James Bible. And in the King James, they use a little bit of a different language, okay? Now, any 
ass can be used by God once in a while. In Numbers chapter 22, verse 22, Balaam's donkey in the King James is called an ass. Balaam was riding on his ass. So people who hear that on podcast or maybe on radio, they would identify with that. They would say, yes, see, God can use a donkey once. But to be used by God consistently, again and again and again and again, you've got to move into being a person who has this particular value, the value of humility, not something that you just are aware of, but something you go after, that you go after humility for your own life. You go after humility in your family, and we go after humility as the desired ultimate outcome for the body of Christ, every single life, every single family, every single church. And so first we're going to look at the character In Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28, the character of characters, the person of people, not just a human being, but more than a human being, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And here, Jesus gives a testimony about himself. And here's what he says. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we understand very clearly that Jesus, who never lied, can't lie. God does not lie. God cannot lie. Jesus never lied. If he lied once, he would have been a false prophet and nothing else would have been justifiable to follow him in. Jesus never lied and never will lie. So Jesus is giving an accurate self-assessment, a testimony about himself, and he's characterizing himself as being humble. Remember that God's objective in your life and mine is not to make us comfortable, but to make us Christ-like. God's objective in your life and in mine is not to make us comfortable, but to make us Christ-like. And therefore, in your life and in your family and in the body of Christ in the church, we must prioritize becoming like Jesus, and Jesus ultimately was and is humble. You can measure whether or not somebody is really growing in their walk with Jesus by whether or not they're becoming more Christ-like, and that is to be someone who's becoming more humble. And so we have all of the Gospels and the New Testament and the Old Testament, the 66 books of the whole Bible, to do a study on what humility looks like, particularly in the life of Jesus Christ. But I want to go to one example here found in John's Gospel, chapter 2. In John, chapter 2, we're going to see Jesus in action, and we want to see what does this meek and lowly person The Son of God look like? What does humility look like? How does humility operate? And here it is in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. 
He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered what was written. Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, how dare you have the audacity to overturn the tables of the money changers and to drive these traders out of this area? Jesus answered them in verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is just like man and just like God to have a divine conflict, that the ways of man are so foreign to the ways of God that they think Jesus is talking about the temple, the stone, the building, when Jesus is talking about the temple of his body. One of the things you have to understand and I have to understand in our individual lives, in our families, and in the body of Christ, that we've got to stop confusing humility with cowardice. We don't even understand what humility looks like, but here Jesus has said, I'm meek, I'm lowly, I'm humble. Learn from me. And what do we find Jesus doing? Going into the temple and overturning the tables and making a premeditative move, fashioning the cords. My son asked me the other day, where would he have gotten those cords from? Well, if there are sheep and cattle around, you have to pull those sheep and cattle around. There's a rope to be found somewhere. And believe you me, if Jesus wanted to do something, Jesus would find something to use. But this is a premeditative move by Jesus with zeal. He's not cowering with his tail between his legs. Oh, pardon me, everyone. See, we have such a distorted view of humility. We think that a humble person is a coward. A humble person is completely compliant all the time with everything. No, I'll tell you what humility is based on the example of Jesus Christ who from his own mouth said and then demonstrated what it looks like. Humility is the complete alignment of everything you are and all you have for the glory and the will of God. That's what humility is. And when Jesus walked into that temple area, he recognized that his house that was supposed to represent the glory of Almighty God had been turned into a marketing program where they were making profit for personal gain, not kingdom gain. And I will say it right here as a means of accountability. When I write books and they become published by the grace of Almighty God, when those books are sold here on this campus, every dime of the proceeds will go back into the ministries of Grace Fellowship. When they are sold here, they will go to Grace Fellowship. But these people had begun to make profit and turn the kingdom of God 
into personal financial gain. And the main thing was no longer the main thing. And because Jesus was humble, because Jesus was totally aligned, everything he was and everything he had totally aligned for the glory and the will of God, his humility demonstrated itself with tremendous courage. You see, it's a false question to ask and contemplate, well, which one do I have to choose, humility or courage? When you are humble and you are totally aligned with the will and the purpose and the glory of God, you will have courage to do what? You will have courage to be zealous for the things not of self, but the things of God. It's not possible to be humble and not to be courageous, not to be zealous, not to be passionate unwaveringly so about the glory and the will of God. Yes, this Jesus is a take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm lowly. I'm meek in heart. And where do we find him? Busy with zero tolerance for sin and competition with the glory of his Father, with the will of his Father. That temple was not created for personal financial gain. That temple was created to represent the glory and the presence of God. And when men got involved, it got messed up. And Jesus comes onto the scene and says, I need to straighten out what was crooked. And you know what? That's exactly what we need to do in our families. We need to straighten out what is crooked. If you are a mother, if you are a father, you need to understand that your household with your children is not a democracy. It's not a democracy. Our society has been shoving down our throats. Well, we just have to be tolerant. We just have to be considerate. Yes, be considerate. Do not be an authoritarian type of a leader, but by all means, exercise the God-given, God-given, God-given authority that he's given to you as a mother or a father, as a parent with children. Because it's not possible to be a leader. Listen, it is not possible to be a leader and not to be an extension of the literal hand of God. That's what a leader is. A leader is the extension of the hand of God. It's not possible to be a leader without recognizing the fearful, awesome responsibility before Almighty God for which someday we will give an account before this thing called the judgment seat of Christ. It's not possible to leave out the awesome responsibility that you are as a leader, an extension of the hand of God. Do not confuse. Stop confusing humility with cowardice. It's not. Humility results in great courage for the things of God, the will of God, the purpose of God. That's what humility looks like from the example of Jesus Christ. Humility is the complete alignment of all you are and all you have for the glory and the will of God. 
That's what humility is. And so in your personal life, everything in your personal life, in your business endeavors, in your job, in your career, it's all in for the glory of God. That's how you know whether or not you're a humble person and growing in humility. That more and more you're seeing that, God, I can give you more. God, I can align myself more. Oh, Lord, forgive me for holding back. I want to align all of my life with you, all that you've given to me. In your family, you begin to realize, children, you need to understand that God gave you your parents. God gave you your guardians who are overseeing your life as the extension of God himself. And so, yes, it's good to be in touch with the needs of your children. You can't lead your children. You can't honor God unless you're in touch with the needs of your children. But by all means, understand, and many of us have learned this the hard way, how you are raising and leading your children in their younger years is planting seeds for how your children will behave in the terrible teenage years which don't have to be so terrible after all. And if you don't believe me, find somebody who understood the hard way. Train up a child when he or she is young, the proverb says. And when he or she is older, he or she will not depart from it. Be courageous as a parent, because to be courageous is to be humble. Lead that family Exercise your God-given, God-ordained, God-prescribed, God-anointed leadership over your family with fear and trepidation, respect for Almighty God that one day you're going to give an account for how well you did that. Now, if you've made mistakes and you find yourself in a position where you wish you would have, should have, could have, then by all means, God's mercy is rich. His forgiveness is rich. Today is a great day to start anew, to ask for forgiveness for selling your children short by not leading with humility and not leading with courage. God's mercies are new every morning, and he's ready, willing, and able to forgive, to cleanse, to heal, and to restore. Stop crying over the spilled milk and start moving forward. As for me and my house, on this day, I will begin to embrace the value of humility, which will result in courage in my leadership in the household that God has given to me. Now, the second person that I want us to look at is Moses, the greatest man in the Old Testament, arguably, and in Numbers chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. We read this, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. But we find out that that's not really the reason. There's oftentimes a real reason lurking behind the perceived reason. Verse 2, and they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Ah, see, that's the real issue. Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Oh, boy. And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. What an amazing statement that Moses 
A man, again, used consistently by God. Anybody can be used by God once, twice, but Moses consistently used by God. And coincidentally, not at all. He was characterized as being a man of humility. And so we ask ourselves this question, well, what did humility look like in the life of Moses? What did it look like? Well, let's just look at one example in Exodus chapter 32. In Exodus chapter 32, one of the darkest days in Israel's history, Moses was up on Mount Sinai meeting with God, and while Moses was up on the mountain, the people were down below with Aaron, and what were they doing? They were breaking the second commandment, do not make any idol out of anything to try to represent the living and the true God. And they had returned to their vomit, as the Scripture says, a dog returns to his vomit, and they had gone back to Egypt in their minds and in their hearts, and they made Yahweh, the living and true God, look like one of the gods of the Egyptians by making a golden calf. They come down off that mountaintop experience, and look at verse 15 of Exodus chapter 32. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountainside with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancers, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And this humble man, more humble than anybody on the face of the planet, look what he did in verse 20. He took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. Are you kidding me? That's what a humble man would do? Do not confuse humility with cowardice. It's a big-time mistake. It's a huge mistake. Humility is the complete alignment of all you are and all you have for the glory and the will of God without compromise. Interesting how Moses assesses the situation and cuts right to the chase in verse 21. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? You know, Moses is not sinning by getting angry. He's being humble in his anger. Sometimes my friends, my brothers, and my sisters Humility actually can do nothing but result in anger. But this is not random anger. This is not haphazard anger. This is focused and targeted because the people had sinned. They had broken the second commandment. And they were also involved in sexual immorality, if you read the passage. Flagrant 
sin. And Moses is the extension again of the hand of God in leading the people. And it is because he was walking with God in humility, he could not help as the extension of God but become perturbed, become upset. And then his anger leads him to specific targeted action. I bet you after they ground up that golden calf, after taking all of that time and giving their jewelry to have it melted down, and as they began to drink the water with the gold dust and the gold flakes in it, I bet you they would never again look at idolatry or gold the same way. What a wonderful, unforgettable way to remember that God means what he says and says what he means. See, a humble person believes that. A humble person acts on it. God says what he means. God means what he says. And he raises up leaders who are simply the extension of his passion and his zeal. He raises up leaders who are fully aligned in humility, who understand that humility is not cowardice. Humility results in courage to do what others are often not willing to do, to take a stand for God in your family to take a stand for God in your workplace, to take a stand for God in the body of Christ. Humility demonstrates a zero tolerance, a zero tolerance where the glory and will of God may be compromised. I bet we never looked at humility that way before, have we? But yet Moses, the most humble man on the face of the earth, is demonstrating what humility looks like in a very practical, a very real way. These people were headed down the wrong path, and if somebody didn't step in and correct them, these people would have continued down the wrong course, down the wrong path, and a humble leader is a courageous leader. A humble leader is fully aligned with all that he or she is and all that he or she has for the glory and the will of God. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. That's what humility looks like. And you might feel very freed up at this moment. Hopefully you feel very relieved and very empowered and very energized to say, you know what, my zeal is honorable. My zeal is humble. My zeal is courageous. My zeal is from God. You know, the Apostle Paul knew what that was like. If we look at the third example of what humility looks like, it's found in the Apostle Paul. And if we turn, for example, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is actually talking about himself in verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man, he's speaking of himself in third person because of his humility. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. 
God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses, though if I should wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited. In other words, to make me humble. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. See, this is where we find out Paul was talking about himself. A thorn was given in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, I, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you know? Your weakness, if embraced, is God's opportunity to move. Would you please capitalize on the weakness that God has given you? And if you don't recognize very clearly your own weakness, something is fundamentally wrong. You don't find anybody in the Bible who has not been made weak before God can move mightily through them. And so we have the third person of whom the Scriptures say very clearly that humility was a characteristic trait of their life. And so we want to ask ourselves, well, how did Paul conduct himself? And I want to look at one example. We can look at many. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Here's what humility looks like. When Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Here is the titanic battle, Apostle versus apostle. Who will win? A humble man, having been made humble, not running away from a conflict, but recognizing that he is the extension of the hand of Almighty God. That's what a leader is in the church, and that's what you are in your family, ordained by God, that's what you are in the position of influence in your neighborhood, wherever you are in the, on the job, to spread through you God's desire, the aroma of Jesus Christ. And how does this humble super apostle approach this? He opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. And what was Peter doing? He was telling people that in order to follow Jesus, you had to be circumcised. And circumcision was a sign of the Old Covenant. You had to keep following all the Old Testament laws in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And what was at stake was doctrinal truth, doctrinal purity. And we see very clearly that humility is not cowardice. Humility is courage. Sometimes humility leads you to conflict you otherwise would not have. Because remember, humility is the complete alignment of all you are and all you have for the glory and the will of God. So if Paul backed off on something this fundamental, this important, and allowed the sin issue to continue, he would have been a terrible leader. 
a dishonorable leader. He would not have been humble. He would not have been courageous. As a result, he would have been a very poor extension of the hand, will, purpose, and glory of God. Don't confuse humility with cowardice. We've only looked at three examples here right now, and I know, I know that it's very dangerous to talk about these three examples because in the body of Christ, oftentimes the curse of a critical spirit is misunderstood as the gift of discernment. Oftentimes, people with the most critical, undermining spirits just want to say, well, I'm just doing what you're saying. I'm just being zealous. I am being courageous. I am being bold. I am being forthright. There's a piece to this equation that you need to get deep down into your spiritual DNA because it is foreign to our culture. And unfortunately, it's also foreign to the culture of Christ when it comes to the body of Christ, the church. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Numbers, chapter 16, one of the most fearful passages in all of the Bible that should help us understand without any doubt whatsoever that nobody who was a leader should ever assume that God has raised you up. And if you're going to exercise courage, you better make sure. You better make doubly sure that God's hand is upon you for whatever it is that you're going to oppose. God's anointing is on you, and you are, in fact, in a position to deal with conflict and difficulty and hardship as the person whom God has raised up to write a perceived wrong. Because when we get to the book of Numbers, it's very clear by this point, it should have been abundantly clear to everybody among the people, but it wasn't, that God had raised up a leader and leaders in Moses and Aaron. But this was not good enough for a man named Korah. In Numbers chapter 16, verse 1, now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. These are seasoned veterans, people who are well-known in the community. These are not novices. These are not freshmen. There are 250 men who raise up and follow Korah. There is some yeast that has now begun to spread. And if you ever doubt that God raised up Moses and Aaron, you only need to read a few chapters of the Old Testament to find out how could they even dispute it. But here they were. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? See the human thinking here? As if Moses had installed himself. As if when Moses saw the burning bush, 
he had then appointed and anointed himself to go be the deliverer of Israel. If you read the Old Testament, you realize that, if anything, Moses was trying to run away. And that's a great mark, a great trait of somebody whom God has truly called. They often try to get away from the calling of God. And their problem is, who do you think you are? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face and he said to Korah and all his company, in the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah and all his company. This is the original trial by fire. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You've gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? In other words, shouldn't you be happy with the position that God gave you? No. You've got to be jealous. You've got to be controlling. You've got to be manipulative. You've got to be defiant. You've got to be flagrant in your disobedience, and your disobedience individually has unfortunately spread to other people who are now deceived, other people who are now rebellious. You better take rebellion in your family seriously. If you're humble, you will. You better take rebellion in the body of Christ seriously. If you don't, there will be hell to pay. One of the things that's interesting and hasn't changed, although time has passed, is that typically speaking, it is not from outsiders that difficulty often comes. It often comes from right within. And when will we learn? When will we learn? Verse 11, therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. In other words, no. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourselves a prince over us? In other words, who are you making yourself the leader? Well, God had made him the leader. Moreover, you've not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them. I have not harmed one of them. And Moses said to Korah, be present, you and all your company before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow. And let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it. In other words, Moses is unswavering and unfazed. He goes right back to what he said in verse 7. Let's get back to the fact that God did call me to lead. And God will affirm and confirm that leadership. Put incense on it and every one of you bring before the Lord his censer. 250 censers, you also and Aaron, each his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Do you understand what's happening here? The tent of meeting where Moses would meet face to face with Almighty God. These people are so self-deceived, so arrogant, so defiant, so far down the road, 
that they actually are taking themselves and presenting themselves at the very place where the presence and the power of God was most obvious. Verse 19, then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin? And will you be angry with all the congregation? Look at how God responds. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. Notice how the elders are supporting the leader. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. See, Moses again, cutting right to the chase. This is not just a personality conflict. In fact, it has nothing to do with personality conflict whatsoever. It has everything to do, it has everything to do with humility and courageously making sure that everything is aligned for the glory and the will of God. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been of my own accord. Now he finally gets to answer this idea. I didn't set myself up as a prince. I didn't do this. If anything, I was running away from it. God has established me as the leader. God had established Moses as the extension of his leadership, of God Almighty's leadership, to exercise the will, plan, and purpose of God, to extend the kingdom of God. Verse 29, if these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me, but... If the Lord creates something new and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol. A lot of debate has been made about Sheol. It's a bad place. You don't want to go there. Then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Notice that it's not possible to separate a contempt for God from a contempt for the leader and leaders whom God has raised up. Those two are interchangeable. They're interchangeable. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallows us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. What an ironic, an ironic turn of events. The ones who were offering fire actually end up being consumed by fire. You see, what's vitally important before you get on a high horse, 
potentially with the wrong spirit, not the Spirit of God, and think that you are the Holy Spirit police force to right all the wrongs in your family or all the wrongs in your community or all the wrongs in the church, you better make sure that God has called you to do that. And you better make sure that you're not opposing somebody that God has raised up. Remember this, children, in your household. God has put your parents and your guardians over you to respect them and to honor them and to follow them. So you've got to understand, I've got to understand that humility is not cowardice. Lead in your family. Lead on the job. Lead in the church. Don't allow yourself to be a coward where the will, the purpose, The glory of God will be compromised if you don't put your foot down. It's absolutely vital to remember. Now, in Romans chapter 13, you can read this for yourselves. In Romans chapter 13, it's an amazing passage of Scripture where Paul is urging people, right after Romans chapter 12, I urge you, brothers, in view of the mercies of God, to offer your body as a living sacrifice. Right after that whole section. In Romans chapter 13, what is one of the things that a living sacrifice does? He or she submits to leading authorities, governing authorities, as again, wow, the extension of the hand of Almighty God. And many in the body of Christ, many in the body of Christ would not debate or argue with the importance of honoring government and submitting to government. In fact, that might be one of our problems in one sense if and when a government goes against a direct commandment of Scripture. But that's for another day and another time. But how we conveniently trade hats. Uh, Many of us who are so passionate about obeying government and submitting and not doing anything and isolating ourselves in terms of factors of influence when it comes to what's happening. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you didn't give up your right to vote in this country. How easy it is to then switch that and to feel somehow in a contradictory way in interpreting Scripture that we can now resist leadership in the church or resist leadership in our families. Because, oh, how we do not understand how fearfully, in an amazing way, God has put people in position of influence in the church, in the family, in the community as His literal extension to exercise His will for His glory and for his will. Now you say, that is so dangerous. So much has been done in the church in the name of God. You know what's dangerous? Getting married. All you have to do to get married is just say, I do. You don't have to take a course. In many places, you don't even have to take a blood test anymore. You just say, I want to get married. But God made marriage, and that's the way it works. You want to know what's scary? having children, but you don't have to take a course to have children. You don't have to take a class, and you don't have to be screened, but God created the family to be fruitful and to multiply. And there can be abuses in a family, and there can be abuses in a marriage, but still God made marriage, and God made the family, and that's the way it works, and God made the church. And every single one of us will give an account before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us needs to be humble 
and to stop confusing humility with cowardice. And every single one of us needs to understand that humility is the complete alignment of all that we have and all that we are for the glory and the will of God. And every single one of us needs to be sure that we're sure that we're sure that we're not willingly or unwittingly opposing the human physical extension of the glory, the will, the order, and the leadership that God has installed. It's true in your personal life. It's true in your family. It's true in the church. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.